Let's get down to God's word. If you have a Bible with you this evening, will you turn with me to the book of Jonah? The book of Jonah. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. And God's word tells us that examples of old time were given for us to learn from. That we could stand on their shoulders, if you like, rather than repeat their mistakes. And as I've been thinking about this man, this prophet, the Lord has spoke to me, challenged me about things in my life, about where I am with him and where I'm going. And I feel led to bring that to you tonight. So let's read together, please, from Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll begin to read there. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth their wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us, that we perish not. And they said, Every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. For time's sake tonight, let your eye run down to verse 15, please. So they took up Jonah, and they cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a mighty sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Just a final set of verses, please, in chapter 2, and let your eye run down to verse 8. And let's hear the conclusion that Jonah has to say after his three days and three nights. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed, for salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and had vomited out Jonah onto the dry land. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. And we'll stop there, and we know tonight the Lord will add a blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your sense of your presence this evening. Father, we thank you for your word, for your great love for each and every person in this place tonight. We thank you there is no coincidences, Father, only divine appointments. And I ask you now to hide me behind the cross, to give me the words to say to make your voice heard and to touch each and every heart in this place this evening at the point of their need, that they would hear that which you would say unto them. And if there are those who don't know you tonight, will you bring them unto your precious Son, and save their souls. For we ask it, giving you thanks in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said, Amen. See, the book of Jonah opens with an introduction onto this man, Jonah, the son of Amittai, a man unto whom the word of God had came and said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for its wickedness or its wretchedness and evil is come up before me. And the idea here is that it was like a stench in the nostrils of God, and Jonah is commissioned to go and to cry out against it. No mean task, no small task, for Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, one of the most ancient cities in the world, and one of the largest. 
They said it would take three days to walk right around the circumference of it. But initially we see here our first lesson from Jonah is his response to what God had called him to do. And we find him fleeing rather than following. And we read in verse 3, But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That word presence is the face of the Lord. When you feel the presence of God speaking to your heart, dealing with you, even in this meeting tonight, that is the face of God looking at you, speaking to your heart. But Jonah rose up all right, but he rose up to flee. And the word literally means here to bolt, to run to make haste, to be off at the sprint. And that was Jonah's response. I wonder, is there someone here tonight, and many times God has been speaking to your heart, that you need to get right with him, that you need him as your savior. But each time you've bolted, each time you've up and you've gone, I don't know about you, but it seems strange to me that Jonah thought he could flee from the presence of God. Did he really think that the presence of the Lord was just particularly in one place, just in Judah? Did he think that if he got up and he ran, that God's presence wasn't elsewhere? That God would forget about him and just appoint another prophet in his place? Did he really think that God cared so little about him and had so little of an eternal destiny for him that he would just cast him off and replace him? Surely Jonah knew that God is everywhere, that you can't run from God. You can't shirk your responsibility before him and think that he will not require it at your hand. You see, the only thing that you can flee from in respect to God tonight is the wrath which is to come. The Bible tells us it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. But we can flee to him. We can flee to Calvary tonight. You can put your trust in Christ and flee from the wrath which is to come. But you cannot run from him with whom your soul has to do. Time and space are not enough to contain our God. He upholds all things by the power of his hands and all things consist because of him. And David even grasped this in his Psalms. Listen to him in Psalm 139. He says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike unto thee. God knows everything. God is everywhere. Listen to the writer of the Hebrews. He says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You cannot run and you cannot hide. One way or another, each and every person in this room tonight is going to have to deal with God. Now, you can either receive him as your Savior, you can either know him as your Heavenly Father and as your friend, or you can face him as your judge. But either way, he is the one with whom we have to do. But yet, Jonah is on the run just the same. He's on the run to Joppa to catch the boat. Joppa means bright and beautiful. Joppa was the center, the hub of activity, the center of commerce, and Jonah was on the run. Jonah wanted to fill his mind with everything but what God had told him to do and to get away from God's calling upon his life. And so he's here. And I wonder how many times are we running from what God has told us to do? How are we filling our time? How are we occupying our minds? Are we staying on the go? Are we just living for the weekend? And all the way we're cramming our lives with things to appease our conscience and to distract us from the conviction of our hearts that we're not where we need to be with him. But God had no intention in letting Jonah off the hook. In fact, very soon Jonah was going to be fish bait. He was going to be well and truly on the hook because God had prepared a great fish 
to swallow Jonah. But we're told that Jonah found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare thereof, and he went down into it. And those words grasped me. He paid the fare thereof. And this is what struck my heart for my life. We all pay a price for the choices and the decisions that we make before God, both in time and in eternity. Now note this, God is a God of reward. Now I'm not talking about your salvation. Salvation is completely in Christ and Christ alone. His shed blood upon the cross is the only sacrifice that God will accept. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot be there by being a good person. That will never achieve anything. It's Christ and Christ alone. But God says, I am a rewarder of them that diligently seek me. Where there is a reward, there has to be a choice. And sin brings its own reward. And the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. But Jonah's decision to board the boat would cost him and those around him much more than a few Joppa coins for the transport. It would take him within an inch of his life and it would cost his travel companions everything that they had. And here ends another lesson from our man on the run this evening. Knowing God's will isn't enough. There must be action. There must be obedience. Otherwise, there's consequence. There's consequence. Friend, what price are you prepared to pay and to have those around you pay to keep running from God? Jonah's disobedience didn't just affect him, it had a knock-on effect. And we read in verse 4 that the Lord hurled out a great wind into the sea and there was a mighty tempest so that the ship was like to be broken. You see, no ship ever made was strong enough to carry such a contraband cargo as a runaway prophet. No ship ever made by the hands of men was strong enough or agile enough to take this disobedient prophet away from his post. And there is nothing tonight that is strong enough to hide a guilty sinner in a harbor where the hand of God cannot find him. But equally so tonight, there's no place where the mercy of God cannot reach you if you'll turn to him. We cannot outrun, outwit, or outmaneuver the Lord. But the mariners were afraid, and they cried every man unto his God. When the panic hit, everybody turned to what they knew. And they cried out to the gods of wind and rain and sea and sky, but to no avail. And we're still doing that today. People are still crying out to everything and anything, and every god and every idol, and the results are still the same. Listen to me tonight. It's not my intention to offend anybody, but hear the truth. There is only one true God who reigns over all, whom to know is life eternal, and his name is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is one mediator between God and men, or one go-between between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So let me ask you tonight, who is your God? If it's not Jesus Christ, then what idol are you serving? Who are you depending on? Who are you putting your trust in against the day of crisis and adversity? What will anchor your soul to the promised land come the day of judgment against the waves of a lost eternity? If it isn't Christ, just like these men, it will be of no avail. They decided in their panic to cast forth the words that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it. Now listen to what that word words means. It means something that has been worked for, something that has been prepared, something which has been hoarded up and saved up. It included things like dress and furniture and jewels and pots and pans and baggage and tools. Let's use a big theological word to sum it up tonight. Stuff. Okay? It was stuff. They started to cast their stuff into the sea. You see, when your life is on the line, stuff suddenly becomes unimportant and life comes into perspective. 
the capacity to view things in their true relation or their relative importance, perspective. You see, when you're sick, when you've ever been sick, you're thankful for every day of health and every breath. If you've ever been hungry or poor, you're thankful for the clothes on your back and the food in your belly. And if you've ever been lonely, you're thankful for the people that God sends your way. Perspective. Come the day of adversity and real storms, the things that we give our life to gain perspective. So let me ask you a challenging question that I've asked myself. Are the things that we've lived for and the kingdoms that we've built and the things that are needful in life, our careers and our bank accounts and our houses and our success and our goals and our ambitions, are the idols that we run to when we're under pressure of leisure and pleasure and wealth? Because let's be honest, we do. We find they're of no avail when all you want to do is just survive another day. In such storms, only Christ can help. He alone is of any value. Now, I'm not against stuff. God's word says, I wish above all things you prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. But prosperity is for a purpose. Our money is for a mission for the kingdom of God. God's not against us having stuff. He's against stuff having us. You see what I'm saying? So the question that we have all got to ask ourselves tonight is are the things we are living for worth Christ dying for? Did God send his son into the world to bear all of that sin and that shame and go through all that he did so I could waste my life on junk? Life is short and it will soon be past and only what's done for Christ will last. The Lord said himself, what shall a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Are we majoring on the minors of life tonight and missing out on the master? Because when we stand before him on judgment day and our life's work is tried by fire, only what's done for Christ will survive the flame to be of any eternal reward. The rest, just like the words of Jonah's companions, will be cast forth and consumed. It's sobering, isn't it? Well, let's catch up with Jonah. Surely in this situation, in the, in the midst of this crisis and storm, Jonah's on high alert. Jonah's, what can I do to sort this out? So let's, let's catch up with him in verse 5. But Jonah was gone down, gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay, and he was fast asleep. Jonah, who had caused all of this mayhem, and in the midst of it all, he's asleep. You see, it just doesn't mean that he was having a wee doze here. He was in a sound sleep, stupefied, or as we would say, he was out for the count. Out for the count. Maybe he was exhausted from the nervous energy and the stress of knowing he was running from God. When you know that you need to get saved tonight, and you can't eat and you can't sleep, and you know it's always knowing that, it's exhausting. Only coming to him and laying your burdens down, take it away. And so we find Jonah again at odds with his purpose. And when he should be alert, Jonah is asleep. Now listen to the shipmaster. He says, what meanest thou, O sleeper? Jonah, what are you at? That's how it reads. Jonah, what are you doing? The word sleeper here is stunned, stupefied, asleep that is on to death. Now listen to how that word reads. Listen to the weight of it. It says, a blanket of lethargy pulled up over you until you sleep on to your death. He says, Jonah, see if you stay comfortable, you're going to die. Because that's all it takes. I'm okay as I am. Things are going great. I'm all right. I'm in a routine. Everything's fine. I don't need to push the boat out. I don't need to go any further. I'm comfortable. Just, just leave me alone. Don't disturb me anymore. What are you doing, Jonah? That's what the shipmaster said. He says, you're sleeping. You're lethargic. You're silent. You're at your ease. And you're in such a dangerous situation and such a perilous time when those around you are about to perish. And how is it you don't care? Challenge. Sobering. Preacher. How is it you don't care? 
church tonight, Christian tonight, child of God tonight, let's put the question on the table. Do we really care? We who have been told we're the light of the world, we who have been told we're the carriers of the gospel, do we really care that people around us are perishing? Do we care enough to speak the truth? Do we care enough to live for Jesus? Do we care enough to really make a difference? And are our lives living out this book in such a way that it looks true? Or as one Puritan said, if being a Christian was a crime and they tried as a court, is there enough evidence to convict us? See, as long as the storm doesn't directly affect us, as long as it doesn't come to our doors and our families, are we content to say, don't ask any more of me? I'm comfortable as I am. Do you know the fastest growing church in this country and in the UK? It's the occult. It's Satanism. Because people are turning to the counterfeit because they can't see the reality. And Jesus said, ye are the light of the world. I am in you. I give you the commission. See, believing in God is not enough on its own. Even the devil believes there's a God. That's entirely different to being sold out living for him, to truly knowing him and being alive according to his purpose. Am I, are we asleep in the boat tonight? The shipmaster says, Arise, call upon your God. If so be, he will think upon us that we perish not. And the shipmaster's cry has been the clarion call to the church since the beginning of time. To awake, to arise, and attend unto the things of God. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says, Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. You don't preach that anymore. We don't say things that got in a pulpit anymore. Because people don't want to hear it. And they wouldn't ask you back. But this wee Spartan apostle, he didn't pull his punches. He gave it to them right between the eyes. He says, they don't know God to your shame. He says, wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing. We can't do whatever we want. And we can't live whatever way we want. All of us, I'm talking about me too, none of us can live the way we want. That's the standard, the word of God. That's how we should be. No compromising. He says, touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. He says, Jonah, wake up, get up, and call upon God. So where is he now? In the midst of this tempest and this raging storm, still more terrible was the outcome of his sin-discovering lot. They said, let us cast lots that we may know for what cause this evil has come upon us. And they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And Jonah's sin had found him out. Sin always takes us farther than we ever wanted to go. But hell has no exits. Hell has no exits. So let's each of us think tonight, before God, where are we before him? Are we really saved tonight? If he came back tonight and he broke the clouds, would you rise to meet him in the air? Are you saved? Are you sure? What are we going to do with you, Jonah? We can't take much more of this. This boat's going to sink. What do we do, Jonah? He says, cast me into the sea. Fellas, throw me overboard. But watch their response. It says, nevertheless, they rowed hard to bring it back to the land. And they could not. Again, strange. They knew what was wrong. They knew how to fix it. And they did their own thing. Huh? They knew what was wrong. And they knew how to fix it, but they fought against it. If you know you need the Lord Jesus Christ in your life tonight, if you know that you're not right with him and you're not ready for eternity and you need to get saved, then get right with him. Still, you're trying to row against God. And they could not, and nor can you. 
Eventually they took up Jonah and they cast him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging and the men feared exceedingly. But God had prepared or specifically allotted and set in place a great fish and it swallowed up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So let's catch up with him again, our man on the run. Let's evaluate where he's at now. He says, you see, when Jonah should be crying out against Nineveh, now he's crying out for his own life. Jonah was sent to tell Nineveh they were under a 40-day death sentence before God if they didn't repent. And now through his own disobedience, he's three days into his own death sentence. Jonah says, the floods have come past me. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. The waters can pass me about even to my soul. And the deaths closed in round about me. Jonah's back's really to the wall here. He's in crisis and he thinks he's finished. But watch what he does. He prays unto the Lord his God in the midst of his crisis. Chapter 2, verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. When my soul fainted within me, the word fainted means was shrouded with darkness, like a cloak that wrapped around you with no way out. When my soul became feeble, beginning to feel, overwhelmed so as to swoon, when Jonah got to the very end of himself, I remembered the Lord. If that's where you are tonight, and you do what Jonah did and call out to him, you'll get what Jonah got. God's answer. God's mercy. God's help. But why is it that so often we have to reach that place before we repent of our own ways and cry out to God for his goodness and mercy? Why must we get to the end of ourselves and have no other choice? Jonah says, in the midst of his trouble, I cried out by reason of my affliction. I cried out because of the anguish and the distress and the trouble that I was going through. I cried out unto the Lord and he heard me. But catch this. Catch this. How he cried out. The word cried out means to accost a person, to light on them. Let me see if I can describe it to you. It's like grabbing somebody by the lapels of their coat and going, help me, help me, help me. That's the intensity of what he's saying. That is how Jonah cried out to God, boy, he's in earnest now. And so must all be who come to God. You see, you can come to God just as you are and all of your mess and all of your sin and all of your mistakes, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You can come to him just as you are. But what you cannot do is come to him any old high. You can't come to him whatever way you want, any time that suits you, whenever you think you can fit it in. It's your eternal soul before a holy God you're dealing with. It demands your utmost of urgency and your greatest of priority. Let me put it to you another way. <clears throat> See, if Christianity is not true, forget about it. Let's all go home and the last one, turn the lights out. If Christianity is not true, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is not real, it is of no importance whatsoever. But if it is true, and it is, it's of infinite importance. Every day of our lives should be shaped based on our relationship with him, living in the light of his purpose living in the light of eternity, which is to come. If Christianity is false, it's of no importance. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. But what it cannot be is moderately important. What it cannot be is take it or leave it. What it cannot be is I'll try. You can't sit on the fence. Jesus said, if you're not gathered to me, you're scattered. Or he who is not for me is against me. There is no in-betweens. The last words Jonah speaks before he is delivered from the belly of the wheel, the great fish, I believe are the golden nuggets of this story. 
They are Jonah's experience, his lesson learned and gleaned, having lived to tell the tale. Hopefully you'll agree with me tonight when you think about this, that Jonah really knows what he's talking about when he makes this statement. See, experience changes how you look at things. It changes your perspective. Jonah certainly did. Have you ever looked back on something and went, if only I knew then what I know now? If only we could put old heads on young shoulders. Jonah said he cried out of the belly of hell unto the Lord. Surely after being purified in such a furnace, he has a uniquely better perspective on life and on what's important. You see, once you've seen a glimpse of hell, you cannot help but be compelled to tell others to flee from it. So Jonah, what's your statement? Preacher, what's your conclusion? Well, it's this. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Let's take a look at it for a moment, and I'll be done. To observe is the word shomar, shomar. It means to hedge about, to guard and protect, to attend onto, to take heed to, to make sure of, to focus upon. To focus upon. So you know what's coming. Here's another question. What are we observing in our lives? What really matters to you tonight? What really matters to me? What is truly precious to you? If you're unsure, take a look at how you spend your time. Take a look at the places you go, who you spend it with, what you do. Despite what we might say is important, talk's cheap. Despite what theology we subscribe to and all that we say that we believe and all the rest of it, what we actually do shows what really matters. Where your heart is, your feet will wander. And that's why Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Paul lamented, All men seek their own, and not the things that are Jesus Christ's. But Jonah says, Take care of what you spend your life on. Your time, your love, your energy, that's all you have to give. Take care how you spend it. Because he says to observe lying vanities. They're false, they're deceptive, but the word is stronger here. It means useless and leading to desolation and evil. All that glistens isn't gold. Things that look good, but in the end, you'll lose your soul if you put your trust in them. And the greatest lie of all is you think you've got all the time in the world to sort it out. Tomorrow's not promised to any of us. He could break the skies tonight. He says they're lying vanities. Jonah, what's a vanity? How do I know to avoid what captured you? Listen, there's three meanings to this word vanity. The first one is something which is transitory. Or another word, something which is temporary, not permanent, fleeting, not long-lasting. In other words, everything in this scene of time. Your very life is a vapor, like rising steam from a kettle and it's gone. Make every day count. Make every minute count. Live conscious of God. The second meaning is unsatisfactory. So here's another question I ask myself. Are you satisfied? Do the things we focus on and give our lives to satisfy? Look at the world around us. Look at the people who have got to the top of the tree. They've got it all. Millionaires. And they're on drink and they're on drugs, trying to find a hit to fill the hollow in their hearts. Suicidal. Because they realize when you get to the top of the tree, there's nothing there. It doesn't satisfy. 
Listen to Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5. He says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This also is vanity. None but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy. Lord Jesus, find in me. Third meaning for the word vanity is emptiness. Emptiness. To contain nothing, to be null or void. But listen to this. To lack reality, substance, meaning or value and to be destitute of effect or force. In God's economy, in what God values, are the things that we spend our lives on lacking reality, substance, meaning, and value, destitute of effect and force. And here's the other thing that convicted my heart. I wonder how the Lord feels when he looks at our lives tonight. He said to Jeremiah chapter 2 and 5, Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me and have walked after vanity and become vain? Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, Children, what did I do on you that you think these things are worth more than me? I would be all to you that you need if you would just trust me. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And this is the most important part. And I'm closing with it. And I know tonight has been hard in some ways. Questioning. And it's as much to me as you, by the way. But it's the truth. So don't be angry with me. Because it's the truth. When we stand before him in eternity... It'll matter. But watch what he says, you're forsaking. To forsake is to turn away and say, I don't want what you have to offer God. I want to do things my way and my time, and I'm turning away from it. But look what we're turning away from. Hear this word mercy is the word kesed. Kesed. It means loving kindness. It means goodness. It means favor, the preferential, undeserved favor of God. We're turning away from all of that. But listen to this. It means the zeal, the effort towards someone with love and tenderness. Did you catch that? Let me say it again. It's a zeal and the effort towards someone with love and tenderness. What's God saying here? When we hedge in, focus on, spend our time, give our energy to things that appear to be necessity, appear to be good, but they are temporary and they don't satisfy and they're empty. When you do that, you are turning your back away from the effort of God stretching towards you with all of his heart, with love and kindness and tender mercy. And that's what it means here. And Jonah understood that. Jonah came to his senses, and he realized he was running from the best thing in his life and the only thing that really mattered. And he repented. He changed his mind. He cried out to God. You see, the Lord just wants the best for you. His heart's full of love and mercy towards you because it's who he is. It's who he is. David was a man after God's own heart. In Psalm 103, he wrote these words. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. It's who he is. For those who would turn to him, David says, he crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercy. It doesn't mean he dollops it on your head. That's not the crown. It's the word atar. It means to surround you. Like in the Wild West when they surrounded the wagons. Gather the wagons, the Indians are coming. It's exactly that principle. God surrounds you 360. And he does it with loving kindness and tender mercy. But there's richness to this tender mercy. It means to surround you with compassion as a mother would the child in her womb. Isn't that beautiful? As a mother cherishes her unborn child, nourishes, cares for, God wants to surround you with tender mercy and loving kindness.
You see, tender mercy means from the bowels. And the Bible talks about that. It means the innermost parts and depths of the heart of God are towards you. In other words, God is saying, I love you with all of my heart, with everything I have. Think about who sang it. He spoke and the worlds were formed. He upholds all things by the word of his power, all present, all knowing, all powerful, eternal, immortal, wise God. And he says, I love you with all of my heart. As one old Puritan wrote, to a sinner whose conscience is bruised by sin, mercy is like music to the ears, and tender mercy the most exquisite form of it. Another definition for mercy here is to refrain from inflicting suffering by someone who has the right to do so. And God has the right to do so. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, no matter who you are. We're born in sin and shape and in iniquity. There is none righteous, no, not one. So we're all in the same camp. So how can he show us such mercy? You see, he didn't pity us from afar. Although he's the king of glory, many's a king visit their subjects, but they don't enter into their poverty and their sickness and their pain. He did. He took on the form of a man and veiled his Godhead in a robe of inferior clay and was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Went through every affliction that you're going through so he could be your great high priest. So he could know what it feels like to be where you are. So he could comfort you in the midst of those circumstances. Can you see him? Can you capture him in your mind's eye for a minute? Receiving sinners. Never man speak like this man. Can you see him healing the blind and the lame? Can you see them running to him just to touch his garment? Can you see him sitting with a fallen woman at a well who was not too far gone for him to sit on the curb of that well and talk to her when nobody else would? There was no one too poor or too ignorant to care for. He disdained no one's loneliness, and he turned no one away. He didn't just visit us to look upon us or give us an example or leave us a set of teachings. No, he went down into our condemnation that he might deliver us from it. He who knew no sin became sin for us to pay our debt, to carry our sorrows, to take our place. They called him the man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. See, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. With the stripes we are healed. When we were yet without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly he commanded his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us so what think you of him do you know what grasped me you see when they took him and they tortured him and they beat him that was God's boy God's child God's son He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. When he went through it, God loved him. When they stripped him naked and put him to an open shame and pulled the beard from his face and spat upon him, God the Father loved him. When they beat him into pieces with a Roman lash so we could be healed, God loved him. And when they took him and nailed him to a cross, the Father loved him. So why is he there? Have you fallen, brother? Have you made a mistake, sister? Are you at the end of your rope, sir and lady, that don't know him? And the devil comes to you and he says, you're finished, you're no good. God can never use you. Do you know how you reply? How, why can God bless me? I'll answer that question if you tell me why is Jesus on that cross? 
Because he's not hanging there for his own sins. He's hanging there for yours and mine. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. If you turn to him tonight, you see that heart of love that was willing to let his son go all the way to Calvary will meet you in a heartbeat and save your soul. And that's the truth. Jonah's disobedience and rebellion cast him into a raging sea to die. But God's mercy found him with fins and a tail and kept him alive for the three days it took him to repent. And mercy has found you tonight. Whether you respond to it, take it into your heart and act upon it, get right with God. Or whether you want to stop your ears and have none of it and let it roll off your shoulder, that's okay. But either way, know this, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Jesus said the men of Nineveh would rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. It's not my gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. So what will you do with Jesus? What will you do with this great mercy that is stretched out with all the heart of God towards you tonight? Are you right with him? Are you where you need to be? Let me close with the words of another prophet in Isaiah 55. He said, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return on to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Jonah, the man on the run. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, don't leave here without speaking to someone. If you've come with someone, will you tell them? Will you stay behind and talk to us? Will you see us at the door? Because I feel in my heart I brought this word for a reason. And the Spirit of God will not always strive with man. If you're not saved and God is speaking to you tonight, you need to act and get right with him. Thank you for listening tonight. God bless you. Gary, you come forward. And we're going to have this time of worship. We're going to go home. This morning was beautiful if you were here. And Greg said something that was tremendous. He said this, give Jesus the moment. He said, give Jesus the moment. We're going to worship him. And here's a moment of time that we'll never get back. God can take anything from you, but he cannot take your worship. You have to give it freely. In the closing minutes of this meeting, let's worship him. Because it might be a moment you give to Jesus, but it only takes Jesus a moment to transform your life. If you reach out and touch the hem of his garment tonight, who knows what can happen? Let's all stand together. Father, we just worship you and thank you for this time and your presence. Father, we thank you for the sense of you. And Lord, you've challenged us tonight. But you've challenged us because you love us. Because you have greater things for each and every person here. Thank you for each and every head bowed. Thank you for all you're doing in their lives, Lord. And all they mean to you and the blessing that they are. Father, anoint us as a people. Raise us up to serve you. To live for you in days when the world is laughing at us, Father. Let them see the glory of our God. Because you're a living Savior. And you haven't changed. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Lead us on with you, Lord. Glorify your name in our lives. And if there are some in this building tonight, Lord, that you're speaking to, please compel them to come to yourself. Don't let them leave here without getting right with you. And now, Father, receive of our praise because we thank you for your mercy. You loved us with everlasting love. You poured it out all for us. You didn't hold anything back. You went all the way to Calvary and you've done it well. 
You've completed that which was before you. It's finished and we're safe in you. We're righteous in you. There's no condemnation tonight. The devil can't come against us anymore because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe when sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We're righteous in him tonight. And we thank you for our great Savior. We thank you for our wonderful Lord. We thank you for the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. And now receive of our offering, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Your matchless and glory. 